Hodor, come here at once. Yes, Dr. Wolfenstein. And it's Gregor. Do you notice anything different about me? Uh, you have bits of brain tissue splattered all over your lab coat? That was from yesterday. Look at me, Nestle Road. I'm smiling. You smile all the time, Doctor. That was my old smile. That was my mad scientist evil genius smile. That was the smile that said, I figured out how to crash the moon into the earth, or... Look, I've invented a ray that turns Methodists into crickets. There was no joy in that smile, Bullwinkle. Mm, how about when you turned our mailman into banjo strings? That was really fun, but no, that was the old me. Look at the smile on my face. That's who I am now, Hufflepuff. All my experiments will seek a goal of greater happiness. I'm inventing a machine that enables fish to smile. Hmm. Uh, what if fish don't want to smile? They don't know what they're missing, the slimy little nobodies. <laughs> Old smile, doctor. I'm sorry, my bad. Here's a list of parts and supplies I need. Take this gift card for Radio Shack. It should cover pretty much everything. Yesterday was the cutoff for Radio Shack gift cards. The whole chain is bankrupt now. What? As a mad scientist, I depend on Radio Shack for stuff I need. How can they pull this on me? <laughs> Uh, so much for the smile experiment. No, I'm gonna get my smile back. But first, let's listen to this show about the history and biology of smiling. And now he still has nightmares about the Burger King mascot, Colin McEnroe. And we may come to that. In fact, we did a whole show a few years ago, of course we did, about mascots and, and particularly why mascots often freak people out. And one of the reasons that they freak people out is they often do have these smiles. You know, these I'm talking about these like people in costumes or other kinds of symbols. You know, they'll have the smile that's completely disconnected to, to everything else from everything else. And it doesn't have some of the elements of real smiling, some of the elements that now can even be measured uh, and can be enumerated. Uh, it, it looks like a smile, but it's not a real smile. It freaks people out. It gives them nightmares. I'm talking about mascots. However, that's getting way ahead of the story. The reason we're doing this show is because in early March, I had a terrible cold and I had a stack of New Yorkers that, uh, like everybody else, I hadn't gotten through. And I was reading all these things. And I read this terrific essay by Jonathan Kalb. It's called The Last Time I Smiled. Um, and I thought, this is great. We have to do a whole radio show about this. Um, and so here we are. We're doing this whole radio show about this. Uh, we're doing it with Jonathan Kalb. We're doing it with Marianne LaFrance, who is a professor of psychology and women's gender and sexuality studies at Yale and the author of Why Smile? The Science Behind Facial Expressions. Uh, Jonathan and Calb is with us. Uh, she's by phone, with us by phone. Jonathan's in a studio in New York, the NPR studios in New York. Um, and he is a professor of theater at Hunter College, CUNY, and is the author of five books on theater. Um, but it, in fact, is, and he's actually currently writing a series of articles on smiling. But Jonathan, I want to begin with you and just kind of quickly have you tell your story. I mean, this is going to be a show about smiling, but it kind of begins with not smiling or not being able to make a smile. So how is it that you uh, are not able to make a smile? Uh, well, it comes from an attack of Bell's palsy that I suffered in 2002. Uh, Bell's palsy is um, an idiopathic uh, ailment, uh, meaning uh, the cause is uncertain, uh, sometimes it's caused by the chickenpox virus, herpes zoster. Sometimes it's caused uh, by Lyme disease. Uh, in any case, uh, it leaves you with a um, paralysis on half of your face, in my case, the left half of my face. 
Um, when you go to the emergency room, you think you've had a stroke. Uh, you're terrified. And then uh, after a shockingly brief examination that rules out a stroke, the doctor tells you, well, you just have Bell's palsy. You'll be fine in two to three weeks. And 85% of Bell's palsy patients are fine in uh, two to three weeks. It just goes away. Uh, but I unfortunately fell into the category of uh, that 15% uh, whose faces didn't completely heal. Uh, I had some uh, healing on the upper face, which has uh, been very important to me, uh, but um, not on my lower face. My lower face uh, uh, still uh, doesn't operate properly with its uh, expressive muscles, uh, and I was left with a, a, a secondary condition called synkinesis, which... Uh, is a cross-wiring that happens in the healing process where the zygomatic uh, muscle that's supposed to pull my mouth up for a smile on the left in healing attached itself to the platysma muscle in my neck which pulls the mouth down for a frown. So when I try to smile, uh, I'm kind of a living oxymoron. Mm. The right half of my mouth smiles and the left half goes downward. And that's the way I've lived for 13 years. Um, and, you know, I mean, if people were to sort of list all of the things that would worry them or frighten them to lose, you know, I mean, the ability to walk or the ability to hold the glass in their hand or this, they, smiling would probably be lower down on the list of, of, of huge primal fears about the loss of that ability. Um, but give us one or two specific examples of why that, in fact, does have very profound consequences for you in your daily life. Oh, my goodness. The, the, the smile is our most important uh, form of nonverbal communication. Um, we use it to, uh, to, to indicate uh, all kinds of things from, from pleasure and approval and arousal uh, to um, displeasure and uh, ironic um, uh, feelings and, uh, and even contempt. A smile can be a weapon. Uh, it's... Um, it's something that we we use without thinking, uh, and uh, what happened is that it became something I had to use with thinking because whenever I tried to smile, it was if as if the left half of my face was pulled down by a rubber band inside my cheek. Uh, but but smiling is uh, is is something that you can't just just lose and then go on with your life because it's connected to your feelings of pleasure. It's not just that you smile because you're happy. It's also that when you smile, you, you make and reinforce feelings of, of joy and pleasure. And so it's a big deal to lose your smile. Um, Marianne LaFrance, uh, your book uh, argues in the same direction as Jonathan is arguing right now. And, and, and one of the things you talk about is, uh, you know, as John, Jonathan says, uh, you lose your smile, you're losing something very, very fundamental. Uh, you looked at the studies of infants. Uh, we know that uh, the infant's first smile is something that's kind of logged and chronicled by parents as much as first step, first this, first that. So, so what do we know about, uh, about the development of the smile in the infant child? Well, one of the things we now know is that the smile is visible actually in the womb, that infants that are in the last trimester have been found through ultrasound uh, cameras to smile in the womb. Whether they're feeling absolute delight in being in uh, that particular context, we don't know, but we know, know they smile. And what that tells us a lot about the development of babies is that babies need to come equipped ready to smile because their very livelihood, their lives 
uh, psychological, emotional, physical, may depend upon their establishing connections with adults who care for them. And there's nothing more seductive for an adult than a smiling baby. Um, is it possible to say, by the way, before I say this, I should say we're live here in the afternoon. If you're listening at one o'clock, uh, our number is 860-275-7266. With your questions and your stories about smiles, we welcome you. 860-275-7266. I'm smiling as I say that. So you know that I mean it. I'm completely sincere. You may tweet us also at WNPR Colin. So, um, Marianne, also, is it possible to say what a smile is? Uh, what, what is a smile? Oh, my goodness. Uh, that is, a, I wrote a book on it. Yeah. Um, the the interesting thing about a smile is that it is both something that is done by someone and it affects the person who's doing it, and it also has enormous effects on anybody who sees it. And often both sides of it, as Jonathan has pointed out, are out of awareness. So I may smile at you when we when we meet. I may probably didn't do it intentionally or with consciousness. Um, but you can still have a, a mini, what I call a mini emotional high in seeing my smile. Again, not necessarily knowing where the feeling comes from, but there's a little blip on your happiness meter uh, that something turned out all right. So that a smile is a core expression of humanity. It is a gesture that if we don't have it, and there's lots of research on various things, including Bell's palsy, but many other both physical, psychological, and intervention kinds of activities that when they render the smile absent, then many other things become absent as well. So, Jonathan, uh, both of those things are obviously very true for you. The A, you are deprived of whatever benefits just come from smiling, and you're also deprived of this ability to communicate by a smile. Talk about the second one, though. If somebody meets you now and they don't know your story, is there... Is there something that enters into the first meeting that you know, Marianne says that if she met us, she'd probably smile at us without even being aware of doing it and doing that? That's sort of not a real option for you, right? Well, the um, uh, there's there's two. I have a two part answer to sure. that. First of all, um, in the early years after my Bell's palsy, I uh, I learned a lot about what it was like to live that way. Um, I would try and smile. Uh, people smile at you on the sidewalk, on the street. A smile is like a little exchange. Uh, it shows somebody that you're uh, you're safe or that you're friendly or something like that. Uh, you know, a, a store clerk has been nice to you and you just want to express a little gratitude. You try and flash a smile. And I noticed that what happened with me is that people's uh, uh, imitative smile that they would want to expect to flash back at me would fade very quickly to wariness and uh, they didn't know what to make of me. You know, what's with this guy? Who is he? And uh, what happened is that I, I started to just suppress facial expression. I started to just go neutral because that would uh, eliminate these weird interactions that I would have with people which were unpleasant. But that's no way to live. That's kind of like a, uh, I don't know, a little living death. And um, Well, it's actually not, had, not, not insignificant that really the word for that, the word for what you're describing is deadpan, right? Right, right. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I had this wonderful eureka moment with my son when he was eight, where I was playing with him on the floor, and I was just leaning my uh, fist, my, my head against my fist, uh, and uh, he was playing with a camera, and he snapped my picture, and he said, look, you smiled. 
uh, and we both looked at the picture, and, and, and it turns out that my hand had, had raised the left half of my, my face and produced a facsimile of a smile. And that, that sort of set me in, uh, uh, on the path of trying to figure out how I could address uh, this unfortunate situation. And uh, uh, produce expressions that might not be like exactly like my old smile, but would nevertheless possibly outwit other people in their uh, in their in their misreading of my face. And um, it's always nice to have something to do to try and help yourself. And mm-hmm. so I gave myself a project of trying to uh, to help myself in these ways. Uh, and I have developed a number of strategies uh, uh, that have been helpful to me. And, I, and, and one of the things that has made them helpful is the fact that my eyes can smile. Mm-hmm. My mouth can't, but my eyes can. Um, yeah, there's actually a, a part of the essay that I found both very funny and kind of heartbreaking where I think one of your strategies involves kind of leading the non-smiling part of your face against your wife in, in photos uh, in, in order to kind of – uh, kind of slingshot your your, your smile up from from her. Um, uh, well, you, you that whole thing about the eyes. So, Marianne LaFrance, um, I think it is time to talk about sort of some of the scholarship around this. And to do that, uh, both in your book and in Jonathan's essay, we get very quickly to this kind of French steampunk, uh, Doctor Frankenstein, uh, Doctor uh, Marcel Duchenne, Duchenne, this guy who who really introduced the first science of smile, right? Before that, facial expressions were just kind of manifestations of what was in your soul, what was in your heart, um, but nobody was really kind of trying to figure out how the whole thing worked. So what did he do? Well, I should point out at about the same time, and in fact, he was in correspondence with Charles Darwin, and it was around the same time that Darwin wrote The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals. So there were other people kind of interested, but what Duchenne did um, is that he decided that he would apply electric current very specifically to particular areas of the face, the thought being that underneath that particular area or those particular areas there would be corresponding muscles, and he would see what would happen to the expression on the face when they were given this electrical charge. And in doing that, he started to make distinctions between not only different kinds of facial expressions, but it occurred to him that there was a genuine smile, which has subsequently become known in the field as the Duchenne smile after him, and the non-Duchenne smile. And in fact, Jonathan's description and the importance that his eyes still work for him is the critical issue, because one of the cues or one of the muscles involved in an actual genuine smile, that is a smile that reflects positive feeling, is the smile that actually goes around the eyeball. It's called the obicularis oculus. And when a true genuine smile is erupts on the face, that particular muscle contracts, causing the eye to get smaller, causes um, on adults the so-called crow's feet wrinkles at the outer corners of the eye. So that is one of the signs of the smile. Even though most people, if you say smile, they think you're talking about the mouth. But in fact, the genuine smile involves both the mouth and the eyes. And, and Jonathan, I mean, the oddity of this, there's sort of a, a Duchenne smile and a non-Duchenne smile. And the non-Duchenne smile, people sort of get the mouth part right and the eyes part wrong. Uh, and you kind of do the opposite, right? Yeah, I am. Um, well, you see, th- what I realized is that the trick for me uh, is to try and get people to focus on my upper face before they're kind of freaked out by my lower face. Um, 
And uh, the, the, the ways that I've figured this out have been trial and error uh, over the years. But um, uh, one of them I, I noticed is, is particularly effective is that I just um, turn my head down and uh, l just roll it up slowly if I'm walking toward somebody and I don't let my mouth uh, move into a smile until um, I get close to the person. And then they have no choice but to look at my eyes first. That's the kind of thing uh, that I've, I've figured out over the years. It works fairly well if, if you're in the right position, you know, but, but you have to think about these things and plan, you know, it's not, it's the spontaneous uh, reactions uh, that are tricky. So, uh, Marianne, one of the things that we do, obviously, is judge uh, people uh, based on smiles. We say, I don't like his smile, I don't trust her smile, or he never smiles, she never smiles. There's, there's a whole way in which we've loaded up the smile with all kinds of perceptual baggage. Um, and, and maybe in the second segment of the show we can talk more about that. But one of the things that's kind of interesting in your book is, uh, and I think Jonathan mentions it in his essay too, is the, the FACS, this attempt to really sort of take all the things that the face can do and put numbers on it so that when somebody's smiling in a way that actually is a way of maybe concealing displeasure or bitterness or papering something over, you can kind of codify that, right, and, and look about look at what's, at least supposedly, look at what's really in the smile? Well, I think the, the system you talk about, the FACS system, F-A-C-S, is a system for coding um, all possible visible changes on the face, which correspond to the muscles that are below the skin. And what is useful about that system is that it has allowed us uh, who spend our hours obsessing about this kind of thing, to make distinctions between and among different smile types. So there's the the one that I've already referred to, the difference between a genuine smile and a, if you will, social or fake um, smile. But then there are also angry smiles. So the lower part of the face is in a smile, but the upper brows show the action of a muscle called the corrugator, which draws the brows in and down. And there you've got people looking sort of like, I'm going to get you. I've got you. Um, I've got your number. Uh, or the sad smile, the miserable smile, which is often shown by people who are trying to put a good face on an otherwise um, negative event. So both parts of their face uh, parts of their face are differentially showing sad kinds of movement as well as happy kinds of movements. But one of the things that's interesting about Jonathan's experience, and I also have a friend who had Bell's palsy, is that some of the cues to what constitutes a genuine smile has to do with asymmetry of the smile. That is, for every muscle on our right side of our face, we've got a corresponding muscle on the left side of our face so that people can actually smile with just one side of their face, the kind of smirk uh, that is sometimes represented in, say, actors like Bruce Willis or something of that kind. Um, and we know that fake smiles or deliberate intentional smiles tend to be more asymmetrical. That is, they occur with more intensity on one side of the face than the other side of the face. We know that smiles that are showing other kinds of facial actions, um, that it, the face is capable of this amazing array of different signals firing simultaneously or, or sequentially. And the, so the face is not just one thing. It's not just that people smile with one muscle and that takes care of it because it's hard to do one thing with the face because the face is this multiple organ system. 
All right. Uh, we're talking about the smile today and about smiling. Uh, we're talking to, uh, that's you just heard Marianne LaFrance. Her book is called Why, Why Smile? The Science Behind Facial Expressions. We're also talking to Jonathan Kalb, who's been writing a lot about smiling uh, ever since uh, he lost a part of his ability to smile. They're gonna, both going to be with us here in the second segment. We'll take a little break and then we'll return. Smile, though your heart is aching Smile, even though it's breaking When there are clouds in the sky You'll get by If you smile through your fear and sorrow Smile, maybe tomorrow You'll see the sun Come shining through for you. All right, we're back. We're talking about smiles. Our guests are Jonathan Kalb. Uh, his essay, The Last Time I Smiled, is in the January 12th issue of The New Yorker. Marianne LaFrance, uh, her book is uh, Why Smile? The Science Behind Facial Expressions. Um, I want to talk also in this segment about uh, sort of uh, cultural differences and, and gender differences. Maybe we can start with gender differences. Jonathan, you found some sharp uh, gender differences in your research about smiles. Uh, if, if in fact, because of your Bell's policy, it's difficult for you to make a normal smile, um, at least you won't be punished for it as much as you would be if you were a woman, right? There's a little bit more of an emphasis there. Uh, that is true. Men smile less than women on on average. Uh, uh, then uh, it's um, it's an it's an interesting uh, result that you come across all over the social science uh, research on on smiling. It's uh, it's very clear uh, and uh, it's quite significant. Um, uh, but uh, an interesting aspect of it is that the the phenomenon doesn't really show up until adolescence. Uh, young girls and boys. Uh, smile equally. Um, so uh, the, the research shows. Uh, but as they're socialized, um, it, it, it becomes a much more profound difference. Uh, women generally tend to have more expressive faces. Uh, they have many more expressions than men do in general. Uh, they show emotion through nonverbal cues more readily, and it has to do with socialization, uh, at least in our society. Um, you know, the theory is that uh, uh, more men and women uh, develop self-esteem differently. Uh, they, uh, w- women's self-esteem is supposed to be tied to interdependence in social relations, where male self-esteem uh, uh, derives from, from power relations, completing tasks, being independent, and so on. Um, that's the theory, at least, but, but the results are, are, are very clear. Uh, Mary, uh, Mary, and this also may have to do with power. I and mean, this is something that you've looked at in, in other parts of uh, your your study of smiles. That uh, the person who has the less power maybe has more incentive to smile. Um, that may also explain, you know, historically, obviously, women uh, often feel uh, less empowered than men. Uh, talk about smiles and power. Well, one of the things that's interesting about this gender difference, which is no one argues, um, the data are really clear on the fact that men smile less than women, and women or smile more than men, both of greater duration and greater frequency and under greater set of circumstances. What's interesting is now trying to account for that. So one of the explanations for why women smile more is that they're more often in occupations and social roles that require smiling as part of the, the job. 
So whether you're a personal assistant or a primary school teacher or a daycare worker or a nurse or whatever, all of these jobs actually often have as an explicit requirement that they smile. Um, so women smile more in, maybe in part because of the jobs they occupy as well as to say nothing of the fact that they earn less in those occupations. Um, one of the other explanations that you've pointed to is one of the areas of research of much interest is the finding that people of lower power, lower social standing, tend to be required to smile. That is a way of saying, I'm of no threat to you, you don't have to worry about anything, I'm smiling, look how happy I am to be in this one-down position. Um, and one of the theories of women's greater smiling is, is in fact their lower status, their lower standing. Um, and in fact, women who don't smile are often soundly critiqued and uh, chastised uh, for not smiling. It's as though it's an affront to the social order that they that they don't smile. And occasionally there have been employment um, efforts by some companies to get employees, often the not the service people, uh, to smile more. And in one supermarket chain in California, the stipulation was that all employees who happened more often than not to be female were required to smile. And women employees took great resistance to this, uh, in part because they said that men took their constant smiling is a come on, and they were always having to ward off um, that particular response. So smiling has this multi-leveled kinds of meaning, and the question, what we have found in our research is that if you ask lower power, lower standing people why they smile, they will say because they have to. If you ask people with power why they smile, when they smile, they'll say because they felt like it, um, which is, uh, I think, a really a solid statement about how power and smiling uh, operate differently in different groups. Um, Jonathan, one of the things, one of the advantages, if that's what it is, uh, that but people have today, at least in uh, written communication, is the availability of emoticons. I am a man. I have never used an emoticon. It has <laughs> never occurred to me to use an emoticon. Oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> um, I just you know, and but but so but that there's some once again. I mean, in in, in some of the ways that Marianne is talking about, th- there is a gender difference about that too, right? Absolutely. Sometimes when I would read this research on emoticons, and there's a great deal of social science research on emoticons, I would have to laugh because it duplicates the research on smiling. Women use them more uh, than men do, uh, and uh, they're frowned upon uh, as well. Uh, emoji also are frowned upon in the workplace. Uh, um, the, uh, the, the other thing that's interesting is how they're used uh, uh, emo- emoticons uh, can be used sincerely or ironically. So can emoji. Uh, and um, it turns out that uh, uh, males uh, use uh, emoticons and females use emoticons more sincerely with same gender uh, communication partners and more often ironically with opposite gender communication partners. That's an interesting thing, too. Um, this also gets us into uh, cultural differences. In just a second, Jonathan, I'm going to come back to you and uh, uh, to talk about uh, Japanese uh, 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 sort of flat emoticons. But before we do that, I mean, this is some of the conversation, Marianne, that we've been having here so far is 
an American conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in fact, one of the things that you discovered uh, in your book is that it sort of doesn't play the same way everywhere else. Not that other people don't smile, but they smile for different reasons. They smile different amounts. My absolute favorite quote from your book is from the uh, French cultural theory Jean Baudrillard, who mocked Americans by saying, smile if you have nothing to say. Let this emptiness, this profound indifference shine out spontaneously in your smile. Um, so French people, they don't smile. They don't do sort of Jimmy Carter smiles. Uh, but you, as you looked around, Marianne, you found that there are significant cultural differences, not only in how much people smile, but how they smile. Yes, I think both sides of that are really interesting. So one aspect is that in people in different parts of the world smile at different rates. So people in Northern Europe, the French, the Scandinavians and the like, do not smile with in anywhere close to the frequency that Americans smile, in fact, often regard American smiling as a little kind of silly um, because it seems to be so undifferentiated, so promiscuous. Um, whereas in other parts of the world, a lot of smiling, say in Thailand, it is regarded as the, the cultural sign of a very friendly culture. So there are a lot of differences in how much people smile in different parts of the world and what circumstances they smile. But one of the things that is most intriguing, I think, is that literally the smile itself, that is the mm-hmm. morphological characteristics of the smile, differ cross-culturally. And there's a wonderful study that shows this where the participants were both Australian and American. Their job was to look at an array, a large array of faces, both of Australians and Americans all mixed together. And their job was to simply try to pick out who was Australian and who was American. When the faces had a neutral facial expression, that is, weren't showing anything in particular, Americans and Australians were equally bad at it. They were at chance in terms of determining who was Australian and who was American. But when the faces were smiling, then both groups were accurately able to detect who was American and who was Australian. It's not entirely clear what particular aspect of the Australian smile is different from the particular aspect of the American smile. There are some indications. But it's clear that Australians learn to smile Australianly and Americans smile Americanly. And one of the things that's interesting is that it appears that when we learn a language, we're not only learning the verbal language, but we're learning a whole slew of the nonverbal things that go along with it. Well, one of the things that you pointed out, pointed out in the book, which I think anybody, once it's pointed out of the, to them, would agree, is that there's an American smile and a British smile, and the British smile seems to use a different muscle that I think you said pulls kind of horizontally so that it, it exposes the lower teeth much more. Right, right. The, the Brits, when there's a big smile, tend to show the lower teeth much more than the Americans do when, when they're smiling. But the other Japanese-American dis- distinction that you've alluded to in the emoticons it also shows up actually in where... Japanese and Americans locate a real smile. Alas, most Americans think a real smile is the mouth smile. How big are the lips parted and how raised are the cheeks? Uh, Whereas in Japan, the genuine smile is only visible in eye motion. That is the action of that muscle that circumferences um, the eye. So that even where people look for the real thing um, differs cross-culturally. Uh, Jonathan, perfect segue for you, uh, because actually this plays right in uh, to, among other things, Japanese emoticons. Take it away. 
Yeah, um, there are two different styles of emoticons. One is called horizontal and one is called vertical. The emoticons that uh, Americans are mostly familiar with um, are just uh, forming a face uh, which you have to uh, look at sideways, where you use a colon and then uh, maybe uh, a dash and then a parenthesis. Uh, And if the parenthesis is one way, it's a smile. If it's the other way, uh, it's a frown. Um, This puts uh, emphasis on uh, the mouth because the parenthesis is the largest uh, keyboard stroke in that uh, graphic. And... um, You can find them occasionally in Japan and Korea and China, but in fact, those cultures prefer uh, another style of emoticon, which uses the the upward-pointing triangle for eyes or even a O for an eye uh, and then a very small mouth. Uh, They have a preference for emoticons uh, that stress uh, the eye rather than the mouth. And I think it's, uh, it's for the very reason that Professor of France uh, 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 expresses. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a difference um, in, uh, in social codes concerning smiling. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, a sliding scale in cultural comparison of individualistic to um, collectivistic. And those Asian countries, Japan, uh, Korea, and China, are, are more toward the collectivistic uh, side Uh, of the scale, and of course America and uh, Australia would be toward the individualistic side, which stresses the self. Uh, The collectivistic cultures uh, stress uh, comparative values, uh, and uh, and that that shows up in facial expression. So um, there's a lot of different kinds of rules for when you smile. There's a wonderful uh, study that was done with Japanese and American Uh, people shown a gory film. When they're shown the gory film together, the Americans frown and express disgust. The Japanese smile during the gory bits because they have a social code that says that you don't express negative emotions like anger or disgust in front of people of a different social status, particularly a higher social status. The smiling would be considered weird in that circumstance to the Americans. To the Japanese, it's considered normal. Basically, when you're in Japan, you spend an enormous amount of your day just realizing that you're doing something wrong and that no one is ever going to tell you what that is. Uh, And so I can now add smiling the wrong way to that or at the wrong times or with the wrong parts of my mouth. You know, I I want to spend part of this segment talking uh, mainly me because it's a a focus of mine a little bit about political smiles and and, – here in Connecticut, we've had two consecutive gubernatorial elections in which the two, the same two men ran against each other, uh, Dan Malloy and Tom Foley. Tom Foley also has Bell's policy, and his smile uh, also is a little bit lopsided. He doesn't – he can't really do um, a kind of a full-fledged smile. And after I read Jonathan's article, I put it down and I thought, I wonder if the last two gubernatorial elections were materially affected by the fact that one person could smile better than the other. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. And uh, Marianne, you have an entire chapter in your book about political smiles. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about them? Well, um, one of the things I think you've pointed out already is that at least in the U.S., uh, American politicians are expected to smile. And in fact, if we had a non-smiling politician, 
at the presidential level, we would probably regard it uh, regard the person as not viable presidential material. His name was Michael Dukakis. But continue. <laughs> well, there have been some others. I think John McCain had a kind of maniacal smile, which uh, made some people uncomfortable. Um, and you just said about John Dewey um, that is it John Dewey. Um, who Thomas uh, versus Truman? Yeah, I think it's yes. Thomas Dewey. Uh, yes, when he was running, um, his um, handlers told him to smile more, and he said, "But I was." So, I mean, <laughs> I think there is an assumption that people, politicians, should smile. That way, we know that they are human, um, that they're uh, appropriately warm. Um, we also want our politicians to be competent, but we really do look for, for warmth. And people are judged on the quality of their smile and how much they smile and whether <laughs> the smile looks fixed or false or pasted on as opposed to looking genuine. Uh, it has been said about Obama that his grandmother would say to him, you need to show people your real smile. But part of his stance, I think, is to show seriousness and competence first uh, rather than some other kind of uh, dynamic. Um, Ronald Reagan had a classic, uh, what uh, is called sort of an everyday uh, common man kind of smile. So his mouth would come up in the smile that is recognizably a smile, but he would develop these furrows in his forehead between his brows, which basically had a kind of quality of concern um, and uh, sympathy. Uh, and it said that Oliver Sacks, in one of his books, pointed out that when aphasics saw only Reagan's smile and didn't hear what he was saying, they thought he was a clown. They thought he was being funny because he had this different expression on the lower part of his face and the, and the upper part of his face, which is often what we expect in um, people who are attempting to be funny. There's an argument to be Can made that the physics were not wrong. Go ahead, go ahead Jonathan. <laughs> I just wanted to jump in here and point out that this phenomenon uh, is, is, a, is a, in, uh, probably a product of the age of photography. You don't see 19th century politicians, uh, in as much as we have records of them, smiling to this degree or smiling in this compulsory manner. We don't see smiles, big smiles, on uh, portraits of Ulysses Grant or Lincoln or Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, uh, it was not expected, and uh, had they smiled more in their formal settings, it probably would have been an indication of uh, unseriousness or uh, lack of trustworthiness or foolishness or something like that. Uh, this, this, this obligation to smile and, I think, the association uh, of, uh, of, of power and... Um, uh, that our politicians will always smile it has to do with the 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 age of stardom of 20th century photographic stardom. I would say if, uh, the ascent of photography and dentistry. Um, <laughs> you know, in the 19th century, if you had like, really bad teeth, why are you going to be smiling? Uh, maybe you can do the the, the closed mouthed smile uh, a little bit. But yeah, it, it does seem as though. Um, and and we we've got to sort of wrap this thing up so we can get on to La Gioconda in the final segment here. But um, it does seem as though a smile, Marianne, is something that we value and prize so much. A genuine smile is you know a, a diamond of such great worth that I wonder if that's one of the reasons that one of the things that makes us so suspicious about smiles that may be false smiles. And and this is sometimes does come up with politicians and salesmen and, and people who, in the words of the song, uh, smile in your face, but all the time they want to take your place, right? We have a real fear of the smile that's not gen- genuine. Right. I think one of the things that's so interesting about it is that our faces themselves 
are, um, are a product of two different neural pathways. So the smile that is deliberate, is conscious, is put on in, as a way to produce a particular effect follows a different neural pathway than a genuine or positive smile. So it's not clear exactly how it is that we as a species develop two different pathways to get smiles to our faces, but I think unconsciously or just intuitively, a lot of people know that to be the case and are on the lookout for smiles that appear fake, in part because we ourselves have been known to ourselves to be fake on occasion. So uh, we know that other people probably do it as well, and it's important to tell the difference. It is possible to tell the difference if you know where to look, and that's why the researchers spend so much time coding the various small muscles on the face and not just the, the one that brings the upward corners of the mouth up. Okay, this is a topic I could go on about for a really long time. And knowing that, I'm going to bring the conversation to an end so that we'll have time for our third and final segment here. Let's do that. We'll take a break. We'll come back. When you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you. When you're laughing, when you're laughing, the sun comes. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Sydney Lauro. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jimmy Carter. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff eating lots and lots of chocolate pudding, visit our website, wnpr.org. And now, back to Colin. Right now we're talking about smiles, and we have really, uh, you know, uh, as good a smile guest panel as you could possibly get. I mean, we really have absolutely the best people. So I was just, before we even get into La Giacana, I just wanted, you know, usually I have nothing to contribute because everybody obviously is a bigger expert than I am on any show that we do. You know, we just get the best people we can. But I think I know something about smiles that none of you know, which is that, um, and I was taught this by a jazz teacher and a jazz singer, that if you want to sound like Louis Armstrong, you have to smile. That part of his vocal production is, in fact, in the smile. So if you're going to do that, <laughs> you know, you actually, in order to get that sound, you have to smile. Um, and if you try to do it without smiling, I mean, try it alone at home in, in the bathroom with the door closed, you, you will discover you can't get the same sound without doing that. All right. So that was my contribution to the show. Uh, well, I will now move back to my role as facilitator. One of the most discussed smiles, besides Jimmy Carter and Louis Armstrong and everybody else, maybe the most discussed smile ever, uh, belongs to uh, someone on a painting. Uh, that, of course, is La Gioconda, the Mona Lisa. Uh, and uh, it obviously is a smile that people find enigmatic. They're not, do they see it? Is it there? Is it not? Uh, and Margaret Livingstone, a professor of neurobiology at Harvard Medical School and the author of Vision and Art, the Biology of Seeing, is here to join us and to tell us it's not uh, what's on her face, it's what's in your own lying eyes uh, that, uh, that determines this. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, so explain this, that, that you're, uh, you're, what, you, what you're telling us basically is that it's not what uh, the painter has put there, it's more what, how our eyes process what we see? Yes. So I was writing this book, and my editor said it was obvious I knew a lot about vision, which I do, but it was equally obvious I didn't know anything about art history. So he made me read an art history book. 
and I started reading Gombrich. And Gombrich asked this question. He says, first of all, it really is a special painting. There's a reason why everybody thinks it's a fantastic painting, and it has to do with the fact that she looks almost alive. So I looked at this reproduction, and you can see it in the original, and you can see it in pretty much any reasonable reproduction, and I noticed that he was right. As I looked at this painting, sometimes she seemed to be smiling and sometimes not. But because I'm a vision scientist, I noticed that when I was looking at her eyes or at the background, she seemed to be smiling a lot with her mouth. But when I looked directly at her mouth, I noticed that she didn't seem to be smiling much at all. And if you can find yourself any kind of reproduction of the Mona Lisa, you can see this for yourself. Just if you look right at her eyes, she seems to be smiling, and then you look down to her mouth and she stops. And Gombrich says that this is because Leonardo used fumato, that is, he blurred her smile, and therefore it was ambiguous. But that ought to mean that her smile would vary with my state of mind, not where I was looking. So as a vision scientist, I also know that acuity falls off dramatically from your center of gaze. So your central gaze is really good at seeing small details, high spatial frequencies, which is why you have to move your eyes when you read, because you can only resolve small details with your central vision. Your peripheral vision, though, isn't bad. It's just different from your central vision. So your peripheral vision is good at seeing big, blurry things, technically low spatial frequencies. So you move your eyes constantly when you look. If you don't move your eyes, your vision fades. We move our eyes two or three times a second. So as you move your eyes around this painting, her expression changes because you're seeing her smile either with your central vision or your peripheral vision. So I filtered the image, and you can do this yourself in Photoshop. I filtered it so you could see what it would look like, like to your peripheral vision, and I did this by using a low spatial frequency filter or a Gaussian blur is what they call it in Photoshop. And then I filtered it so as if you could see the whole thing with your central vision by using a high-pass filter, which just but you can't see the whole thing with your central vision all at once normally, but this makes it so you can see what it would look like. And and she seems to be grinning from ear to ear in the in the blurry versions, and she isn't smiling at all in the high spatial frequencies. All right, let's look at look at this a couple of different ways. We have, we're very, very low on time here, but um, I mean very low on time. But Jonathan, um, another way to think about this, and it may not be specifically on point uh, to what she's saying, though, is something that you call holistic processing. One thing that you've discovered is that, um, because La Gioconda is a stranger to us. We don't know who she is. We never met her. We don't know anything about her. You've discovered that people who know you know are, are able to sort of impute or, or or infer a smile from you in a way that a stranger cannot. That's correct. Uh, this is a phenomenon that um, uh, Duchenne uh, uh, actually uh, is the first person to have articulated. He called it the whole face illusion, which is that uh, uh, people will um, look at the emotion in a person's eyes and, and project it onto the rest of the face. Uh, that's very important for me. Um, uh, and uh, or or they'll take a uh, a frown uh, and they'll see uh, eyebrow movement because a frown can al- often be just eyebrow movement. But they'll imagine that the mouth is also expressing 
the doubt or the consternation. Uh, it's, he called it the whole face illusion. Uh, and it, the interesting thing with Duchenne is that he didn't listen to himself when he was thinking about art. There's a very strange final chapter in his book in which he criticizes classical and Renaissance uh, artists. He takes specific sculptures and paintings to task for uh, uh, having uh, mutually exclusive uh, emotional facial features. Uh, and, uh, and then he pays somebody to uh, uh, sometimes take a model of the head and then he corrects it and shows um, the actual artwork and then his own uh, improved version. Um, it's, as a 19th century person, it's foreign to him, this modern idea that the discordance has aesthetic value, that maybe you can have a face with two different messages and it could be beautiful or, or it could be humanly expressive. Jonathan, and I think that's what's going on in the Mona Lisa. We're going to have to stop there. Thanks to Jonathan Kalb, to Marianne LaFrance, to Margaret Livingstone. Actually, Marianne LaFrance would tell you that the FACS on Mona Lisa finds 83% happy, 9% disgusted, 6% fearful, and 2% angry. That's in her book. Read her book. Read Jonathan's work. And thanks to Betsy Kaplan for producing. Mona Lisa Dr. Wolfenstein, you're still not smiling. Yeah, well, I just feel like, you know, what's the point of all of this? What? Do you want to slap me in the face again? I, I don't know. Come on. Well, okay. Ow! <laughs> I think I see a smile. <laughs> yeah.